Forge of Foes, my latest book talking about how to build monsters, has been released to Kickstarter backers. I'm going to talk about Shard Tabletop, which may be not a D&D Beyond killer, but certainly a competitor to D&D Beyond. We're going to talk about the latest 2024 D&D playtest, which included a whole bunch of new classes and a whole bunch of new information. We're going to talk about two different Tales of the Valiant playtests that just came out this week. And we're going to cover the final questions from the June 2023 Patreon Q&A. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to The City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, video previews, product previews, the monthly Q&A, and a dedicated Discord server, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. It's very reasonably priced. You can find a link to that in the show notes below. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. Forge of Foes, the book I worked on in partnership with Teos Abadia and Scott Fitzgerald Gray, has been released to backers of the Kickstarter. We launched the Kickstarter in March of this previous year. We've been working really hard, and the book is done. The PDF is done. So we just released this to backers. It is not yet up and available for general sale, but you can still pre-order it by going to the Forge of Foes pre-order link. You can find a link to that down in the show notes below. If you pre-order it, when we lock your pre-order in and we charge your card, then you will get a copy. So you'll probably be like two or three days after you put in the pre-order, you will be able to get a copy as well. But we're really excited about it. Oh, my god we love this book i mean both of all three of us have been going over this book like non-stop for months and oh it's it's so great to have it out there the feedback has been really good been talking to a lot of people have been using it talking to people that have been going through theirs really 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 cool stuff and it is we, we couldn't be happier with it so i'm not going to do like a full deep dive into the book they'll do another video once it's available for general sale you can go in and you can buy it i'm going to go do a deep dive of the whole book and we'll, we'll, we'll talk all about it but i did want to do something a little fun today which was there is a piece of artwork on page 100 called what makes a great monster and it is my favorite piece of artwork from the book i love the artwork in the book is fantastic but i love vampires i'm a sucker for vamp i'm a sucker for vampires and uh, I, I like I love this piece so much. And somebody's like, "Hey, why don't we build a stat block for it?" And I was like, "Yeah, why don't we build a stat block right on the show? We'll do it. We'll 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 see how quickly we can build a really cool vampire knight stat block." And so we're gonna do that right now. And you can get out your stopwatch and see how long it takes to to build a stat block for this. Let me get my notes all set here. Before you start your stopwatch, we will go. Ready? Hit your stopwatch. Go. So we are going to build a monster. So we are first thing we're going to do is go to our quick monster building. We have a monster toolkit section, quick monster builder. We go right there. I can't get my thing away. We're going to go right to our big table. Now, what's, so what's the right challenge rating for Vampire Knight? I'm going to go with CR8. I think that CR8 is about right. That feels right for a Vampire Knight. So for a CR8 Vampire Knight, we, we will do that. CR8. And we'll say AC slash DC is for an eight is 15 hit points is for cr8 is 136 that sounds right sounds good let's see cr8 hardest part is like losing it plus seven to so attack bonus slash proficiency is plus seven feels right dpr is 53 we just keep that handy in case we need it but we probably don't three attacks so attacks three great sword attacks Plus seven to hit, and they do, let's see, where's the CR8 again, 53, 18 damage. We're going to do nine slashing and nine necrotic. So now we're, 
so we have some baseline stats right off the bat. That's and right, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to run the vampire night. I can improvise everything else. But no, we're going to do a little bit more. So I, I, you saw that I that I they split the 18 damage into nine slashing and nine necrotic. So that works. We're going to do a DC 15 or the target loses hit points. Ma the target's maximum hit points is reduced by the necrotic damage. So it has a life draining greatsword attack, right? We can say life draining greatsword attack. We're going to say multi-attack makes three life draining greatsword attacks. All right. Very straightforward. I, I spelled life graining. Remember, this is just for us to run at our table. It does not have to be clean. The mechanics don't have to be perfect. We just have to think about it. There's one other feature that I really want to add. I'm, I guess there's two other features I'm going to add to this Vampire Knight. So we have a whole bunch of different powers and features that are in here by type. So let's take a look at Undead. We'll go to Type Undead and see if we have anything in the Undead area. So damage immunities to poison, we can actually just copy this straight, straight out if we want. Right, just to give it some baseline stuff. We'll put that right right before it's DPR. So that's set. Undead resilience. If damage reduces to zero, they must make a con save with DC 12. Unless the damage is rating from critical attack six, it drops to one hit point. So that'd be like your... That would be the equivalent of your zombie. That doesn't really exactly fit a vampire. Stench of death. Any creature that starts its turn within 10 must succeed in a con saving throw become poison. That's probably a little extreme too. They, she doesn't smell bad. She looks like she smells just fine. So are there other other sort of powers that we want to throw in here? So we have these common monster powers. We could do a damaging aura. If we were going to make her like legendary, we might throw a damaging aura around her. But I think if she's just a straight vampire knight, we're probably not going to bother with that. Damaging weapons, defender delights in suffering when attack targets a creature that hit points with half their maximum. This creature has advantage on attack rolls and deals an extra CR damage when they hit. That's not bad. When attacking a target whose current hit points are below their half. That's the delights in suffering is a pretty good. That's that's a fun that, that's a fun feature that we can put on and, and makes sense for her, right? She she looks like she would do that. And an extra CR, an extra eight damage, right? So she does an extra eight damage. And we'll say necrotic. That works. Pretty nasty. But probably only once per attack, right? We're going to have her do an extra 24 damage. That would be a lot of extra damage that she does. So one time per, once per turn. All right. So she's only does that one extra time per turn. Makes it extremely dangerous. The one thing I wanted to add, and I think it's in the other monster power section, is a charm. So we have the monster powers is the larger chapter. This wasn't in the preview, but is in this book. And I think that there is a charm ability in here. Yeah, charming and fey, word of treachery, charming words. This creature chooses any number of targets who can hear them, must succeed at charisma, save and throw, be charmed. No. Creature speaks deceitful words at a target within 20 feet who can see them and hear them. Target must succeed at charisma, date, saving throw, immediately use the reaction to move up to 10 feet and make a melee or ranged attack against the target of this creature's choice. The compelled target uses an attack they would typically use against a foe. I love that. And that is a perfect vampire trait. So we're going to add that and can prop. I'm going to do this as a bonus action instead of an action. One thing that's very clear, Teos did most of the, he did most of the work on all these monster powers. And one thing he was very clear about is like, these are the start of it, not the end of it, that you are able to modify these things however you want to fit exactly how they work best. As you saw, I did that when I put in the delights and suffering trade is once per turn and we're done. 
So you can turn off your stopwatch right now and say, how long did it take to make that monster? That was actually a little longer than it probably would take if you're actually doing it at your table because I'm kind of talking through things. I'm doing a little bit of formatting in the stat block, stuff like that. But at the end, we see that we have a pretty good vampire knight. CR 8, AC is 15. The hit points are 136. I'm keeping the attack bonus proficiency. You see, like, I didn't have, like, the, all of the exactly what the stats are for, like, strength, dex, con. She is probably high in dex... You know, high stats in dex, uh, con, and charisma, and probably low on will, int, and int, and then probably moderate on strength. She's probably pretty strong. You know, makes sense that she'd be strength, dex, con, and charisma. So, and that's like, do you use that plus seven? And then you kind of make them up as you go. And a lot of it is like, you know, you can make up an awful lot of a stat block right at the table. But I like these traits. Delights and Suffering works really well. The Life Draining Greatsword works really well. And Words of Treachery. And you don't really want more than that for like a standard monster. Three, three, pretty good for like a beefy standard monster. But that would be a really, like, I'm looking forward to running this Vampire Knight. That would be a really fun Vampire Knight to run. I might run that my Empire of the Ghouls game. So that's just an example of like how you can use this book in order to make, make a monster. We're really excited that it's out there again i'll do a deeper dive into the whole book once it's available for general sale but i'm couldn't be more excited that the that the book is out there ali briggs did that artwork by the way shard tabletop so i have been talking a lot i have been making a lot of noise certainly in the last six months or so but even then a little bit before that about DD beyond the one the one monopoly that i see that's going on with with fifth edition with role-playing games with fifth edition with DD, and that's how much players really focus on D&D Beyond as a character builder. And I mentioned in the last show that I really wish that we had seen more companies, more groups that were making competitive character builders where the character builder component wasn't built into the rest of the virtual tabletop. The example is if you look at Foundry, Fantasy Grounds, and Roll20, all of those have a character builder in there and they use other 5th edition sources other than just Wizards of the Coast that you can incorporate into the character builder, but they're all part of the VTT. That if you if you want to use that character builder, you really have to launch the VTT. That Roll20, in order to use the character builder in Roll20, the, what they call the character mancer, you have to load up you have to load up Roll20. The same thing is true with Fantasy Grounds. The same thing is true with Foundry. But Bonker, who I, so I've had people tell me this before, and sometimes I have to hear something a lot in order for it to like sink in because I'm very busy. I hear a lot of different things. And sometimes things have to get through the sieve. But Bonker, a patron of Sly Flourish and a member of the Sly Flourish Discord server, had said, dude, I'm really sad that you never talk about Shard. You talk about all the stuff, you never talk about Shard. And I know Shard. I actually have a product that's up on Shard. Ruins of the Grendel Root is available on Shard. But I don't use a lot of virtual tabletops i've only toyed around with shard a little bit and i really hadn't been paying much attention to it and but he was like it does all the things that you say that you want all the things that you talk about shard does and it's like all right fine i'll go take a stop yelling at me i'll go take a look at shard and i did and he's right that shard is a virtual tabletop it is a whole suite of tools that you can use to run your role-playing game but in particular it has the it has two features that i think set it apart from everything else that's out there one is that the character builder component, the ability for you to make a character and view your character and run your character, including rolling, rolling dice on your character, can be done on a phone, it can be done on a tablet, it can be done in a browser, and you can do without loading any of the other components of the game. You don't have to have the virtual tabletop component. You don't have to have like a big heavy desktop with lots of different windows open. You can just have your character sheet open. That is a critical feature. And two is it has lots of support for other 5th edition publishers, including lots of support for Cobalt Press. So if you are a fan of 
of Cobalt Press, in particular, if you are a backer and a fan of Tales of the Valiant, Tales of the Valiant is going to be available on Shard. That's actually one of the options in the Kickstarter was to back Tales of the Valiant on Shard. You could get all the material on Shard. And they have been partnering. Cobalt Press and Shard Tabletop have been partnering now for a while, so much so that even beyond being able to buy Cobalt Press products as part of Shard is that part of Shard's subscription model gives you access to Cobalt Press material as as the base rate. So we're going to take a quick look. Now understand, I've only spent a little bit of time playing around with Shard. I haven't really done a whole lot with it. But I did play around with it a bit. And you can see right away, Dolly, Dolly Solomon, by the way, is a character. It was an NPC in my Empire of the Ghouls game. But you can see the whole character, the whole character sheet over here on the right. And it's got the little load up and everything else, but, you know, like dice rolling and, and what's been going on. But it is, it fits in one screen. And the main thing is you can view it on a phone. You can edit your your character right on right on the sheet. You can do all kinds of things, all, all the things that you would typically expect to do. You want to make a con saving throw. So you can say, I'm going to make a con save. You roll your con save. It rolls a die. It tells you that you got a 17. So it's got dice rolling built in. It's got all of your abilities built in. It's got spells. Of course, you can load up the spell and load up the details. So all the things that you would expect a good, rich character builder to have, it it has in it. There's also, I forget exactly where, but there's a way to, to print it as well. So you can click on the name of the character, and one of the things you can do is say, print. And you can, you can hit this, and it gives you a printable version of the character sheet. We are actually going to, let's see, that looks a little weird. Why does that look weird? Oh, so you click the little print button down here, and it gives you, we're going to save to PDF. And we'll save it to the desktop so we can see what it actually looks like. So the character sheet that you get from from Shard, not it's not built like a fifth edition character sheet. It's a little, you know, like it could use a little bit of work on the formatting of it, but it definitely plays out. I had a player who played with it. He used it at the table and it worked fine. Shows you your, your equipment, shows you your spells, gives you information about the spells that you need, gives you all the information about your class, kind of splits it up right. So it's not perfect. It's not a fantastic printable display they could definitely do some work with a better printable display but it is usable the main thing is you can you can print this out so we're going to really quickly show what it's like to build a character in shard you click on your new character we're going to just go with a random name i like the random name miyaza quinzil that sounds great and you pick your race you can pick all the bunch of different races that are in here we're going to go with elf we will go with a high elf and you say select and you've got the high elf. You immediately pick like your languages. We're going to say speaks draconic. That sounds fun. And pick a cantrip. We are going to pick good old prestidigitation. I love prestidigitation. Right? You pick your background. So there's a bunch of backgrounds. These are backgrounds that are available. So right now, Bonker, right? Who's right here? Thanks, Bonker. Bonker gave me access to the stuff that he has available in it. So I have, I have stuff that's in here. What we're going to pick? We'll just pick Acolyte for fun and you hit select you get your languages we're going to say gnomish and we're going to say celestial right you pick your class we'll go with fighter shows you all the fighter stuff you hit select skill proficiencies good old athletics and survival class feature you pick your fighting style good old great weapon who doesn't want to do great weapon hit that hit points all set abilities you can you have this adjust abilities where you can just pick you know pick the abilities that you want to run you can move you can select it says you can move your your bonuses around all that kind of stuff anyway full character builder already built in and but to me 
most importantly, one, you can incorporate other 5th edition publishers other than Wizards of the Coast. And two, you can view the character sheet outside of any other part of it. I don't need to load the rest of the builder. It is all it is all available in one view. Again, you can load it on a phone. You can load it on a screen. You can put it in a little side window on your screen. And you can print a version of the character sheet from it, which are very critical, very critical abilities. And it has that a killer function that D&D Beyond does not have that this does is the ability for the DM to share material and select exactly which material is shared with the player so that when they're building their character sheet, they only get the options that are available that you want to have for your particular campaign. Those are really critical features. What I'm really looking forward to is the idea that Tales from the Valiant will be kind of a core version of 5th edition that is available with everything in it on Shard. So because one of the things Wizards of the Coast does not support Shard, you cannot get all of the Tome of, you cannot get all of Tasha's cauldron of everything you can't get xanathar's guide to everything you can't get any of the other wizards of the coast proprietary stuff you get all the fifth edition system reference document material plus all the stuff other publishers have created including ogl stuff that's available but you can't get that material because wizards of the coast isn't supporting shard like they are with fantasy grounds and roll 20 you can that is one thing bonker brings up a very good point which is you can import a character from dnd beyond if you go into dnd beyond and you build a character in dnd beyond you can import it from dnd beyond into shard and it will bring over that material that you had had available in dnd beyond so if you already own that material in dnd beyond and want to port it over you definitely can i don't know exactly how that works if you're also mixing material from other classes probably you have to pick the stuff in dnd beyond that you want then import your character then add stuff from other publishers of fifth edition that you want to add but you can get there a little bit clunky probably you know i haven't done it but it sounds like you're gonna have to do a little bit of work but it can definitely work the main thing is there is a competitor to dnd beyond there is a dnd beyond alternative that allows you to bring in material from other fifth edition publishers that isn't run by wizards of the coast is run by a different company completely and that is part Partnering with some of the biggest players in the tabletop RPG space, including the big one being Cobalt Press. So very excited for that. Bonker, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. I hope you guys find it. If you use Shard, if you're familiar with Shard, tell me more about it. Tell me how you use it. Tell me how you like it. If there's tricks that I've missed or you're like, oh man, you totally missed about how you can customize the print screen. Tell me about that because the print screen isn't great. I really wish that was better, but it's really, really cool. And I'm glad to see it. And I think it's, I, I, I want to see more. I want to see, you know, this is great. Shard is great, but I want more. I want to see other character builders too. I want to see, I want, you know, I think, I think this is a space that could be open, which is more character builders that allow you to custom your version of fifth edition for you and your group that make it, makes it easy for your players to go in so that one company doesn't have a complete lock on how we're playing the game. This past week, we had actually two companies that are both making 5th edition, new 5th edition games that are coming out, both that put out playtests, and in some cases, the playtests directly overlap. So Wizards of the Coast put out a new D&D 2023 playtest, a great big one, with a whole bunch of new classes. And Cobalt Press has put out two Tales of the Valiant playtests. So we got a lot of stuff, but we're going to start by taking a look at the D&D playtest itself. Great big book. I am not going to be covering all of it. It is 77 pages, but there are a few things that I wanted to pick out where I was like, oh, yay. Now, as always, two important considerations while I talk about this playtest. One... I am not a detail-oriented person. I have a tendency of just kind of skimming through things. I, I hear things from people. I kind of pick up ideas and I run with it. And so 
I'm not doing a full exhaustive look. I could say things that are wrong. And there's certainly things that they could have in here that I missed. So all of that could be true. And two is I am almost always, I am pretty much always thinking about this from the point of view of a DM. In particular, the thing that I'm looking for the most is, is this going to make it easier or harder for me to run the game? Because that's really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for stuff that makes it fun for players, but also easy for me to run and fun for me. And there are definitely areas where that can get in the way. I talked about this in previous previous shows where I talked about like, what are the things I wanted to change in, in the 2014 books to make my life a little bit better? We're going to talk a little bit about that here too. So there are a few highlights that I want to pick on. We'll pick on these. But one is that they how they changed a monk's stunning strike I'm on board. It means that a monk can't go up and spam stunning strike on a legendary monster and eat up all their legendary resistances. I heard a bunch of people that are really mad that you can't do that. You never should have been able to do it in the first place. You can yell at me in the comments, but you, that, that was, it was so clearly like a design feature. Like, no, they don't expect you to do three stunning strikes because why would you want to bother? Well, you want to bother when you have a legendary monster. And I don't like that. Moondruid. They changed Moondruid. I've been complaining about Moondruid since like the day the day it came out. I was very angry about Moondruid. I got used to it. I just accepted Moondruid, Moondruid stuff into my heart. But they have changed Moondruids in here. And we're going to talk about some of those changes. I think they're good. I think they're good changes. Paladin Lay on Hands has a bonus action. That's great. And that's one that's a definite buff. It is makes It makes it better for characters. I think they should be able to use Lay on Hands as a bonus action. Also because they have a lot. One of the things about bonus actions is you make it sound like bonus actions are f- like free. And they're not like I've played characters where I had far more options for bonus actions than main actions. And so bonus action management became really hard, which makes the game a little bit more complicated, and a little bit slower as you think about like, okay, what's which, which one am I going to use for which and which one of my bonus actions is that gets a little bit, but you know, that level of crunch isn't exactly horrible. But they, the, the paladins have so many things that they do with their bonus actions anyway, that moving, smi- moving, moving lay on hands to a bonus action well they already have heal spells they can use as an action so that means they have two different ways to do heal spells but i think it makes sense to move lay on hands to a bonus action i'm pretty good with that smite changes we're going to take a look at them because i don't really remember exactly how the smite changes work i think you can only smite once per turn which is nice you can't just like stunning strike it never really made sense that you could use smite multiple times per turn that really felt like was pretty 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 high so but we're going to take a look because i think now all the smites work the same and i think that that's a good idea because it was weird that you had like divine smite that was one whole system and then you had like all of the other smite spells that were different and you could stack them you could like i'm going to use burning smite as a spell but divine smite as a my free action and then make an attack and like stack them all together and then i'm going to do it again because i could do it again it was weird stuff like that and then they move subclass pro- progression. They, they talked a lot about this, that they originally, they were going to normalize subclass progression. They realized it's going to break too many subclasses. So they moved the subclass progression back to the same way that it's done in 2014. Only you still only get your first feature of your subclass at third level instead of first. Their reasoning for that makes sense, which is you don't want to overburden a new player with too many options. But obviously that's not too much of a problem because now they're also making you pick a feat. So I don't know why they said, oh, picking a feat at first level, instead of making that an optional rule which i think they should they said oh it's okay to for decision paralysis on feats but it's not okay for decision and paralysis on subclasses i guess i don't know i don't really buy it you can't you can't say you're making life easy and then also throw feats in there but whatever no one's asking me so so the, the, yeah, it's in the right direction right at least they're, they're 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 clearly thinking about not breaking previous subclasses I'm okay with that. So let's let's actually just do a quick skim on some of these on some of these things. Again, I'm not going to go through 77 pages of playtest stuff. You can go download the playtest. You probably know where it is, but I'll put it in the show notes below. 
because it's there. But I, I get that, I, you know, yeah. So I understand why they're doing the subclass thing. I didn't really take much of a look at bards. I nothing nothing really leapt up at me with bards. There's probably some bard stuff that really matters. I know people really love the idea that there's a college of dance. That was something they really liked. College of glamour was good. One thing I do like is that they just clearly define how many prepared spells you have. You have so many spells that you can prepare a day. And instead of it used to be like your level plus your ability bonus. And now it's like, no, just here's how many. Right. And that makes that makes sense. So I really like that. They moved, let's see, Divine Order, um, Formula Card, Holy Orders moved from second to first level. Spellcasting, no other change. Spell preparation is no longer tied to the level of your spell slot. So that way you prep spells, they, they just have a nice, a nice list. All of the things that are have changed, they put in these little boxes here. So that's really that's really handy. You wanna you wanna see all of the big changes? Take a look at the gray boxes and you can and you can see. You can see what they've done. They put a lot of different subclasses in here too. So now there's lots of different subclasses you can you can check and take a look and see see what you dig. Again, I'm I'm looking at it from the standpoint of are there things in here that are making life harder? If you have read in depth the playtest and you said, hey, there's definitely stuff in here that's making life harder for a DM, please put in the show notes. I remember when they did the wizard playtest, there was definitely people who said, hey, yeah, this whole thing about how a wizard is able to kind of turn one of their spells into an always-on thing is definitely going to be a problem. You want to take a look at that. So stuff like that, I'm, I'm all I'm all ears. To me, one of the big things, because I, I paid a lot of attention to Moon Druids, and when I was first playing, the idea that you'd have these low-level characters that could turn into creatures with like three times their normal hit points, and then when they went down to zero, instead returned with their normal hit points, that felt bananas to me. You know, that really felt bananas to me. And so they've definitely changed how Circle of the Moon works. And I, I, I kind of like it. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what they did. So instead of uh, just gaining all of the hit points of the, of the creature that you get, so like you transform into a bear, you suddenly have like 63 hit points or whatever it was. Instead, you assume, when you assume the wild shape form as a Circle of the Moon Druid, you gain temporary hit points equal to the form's hit points or three times your Druid level, whichever number is lower. I thought that was a little awkward. And I'm like, why not just make it you get three times your druid level and temporary hit points flat, right? And that way you're you're because if you're getting like one or other, but it's both. And somebody's like, well, what if they want to transform into a house fly and now they're a house fly with 33 temporary hit points? Well, who cares? That's actually kind of cool. I don't I, I don't mind. So the idea that you have to go look at the monsters, say how many monsters hit points does that have, and then do the math of what's my level times three, which one of these is hot is lower, that's the one I am. And you're almost like, you know. You're penalizing them for the, you're making them do a lot of work in order to penalize themselves. So why not instead just say it's three times you, you get temporary hit points equal to three times your level. And the advantage of that is you do not gain the hit points of the monster that you transform into. That to me matters. You can cast some of your spells in the form. That's good. You also get an AC bump. So the advantage in this is that and this was the thing that kind of set Wild Shape to be roughly okay in the 2024 or 2014 version was that the armor class of the monster was usually really low. So you transform into a beast, and when you transform into that beast, yeah, you got a bunch of hit points, but you get hit all the time. So my wife, who loves Moon Druids, would say, you know, it really isn't that big a deal because you're going to hit me all the time. And she wasn't wrong. Like, that absolutely takes a place. So in this case, your AC goes up, and your hit points, you don't get all those extra hit points that you got by transforming into the beast. I wonder if those two just kind of balance each other out, though. Like, in the end, we're doing all this stuff. Is it really a change that was needed? Like, Wild Shape, when I talked about the things that were making my life harder as a GM, I didn't put 
Moon Druid on there, even though it bothered me initially, because it turned out like, well, they're, it's really not hindering things that much. They might be a little bit more powerful, but it wasn't that big a deal. So I don't know. I mean, I think these are good changes, but again, are like, are they changes just for change sake? Now it is kind of fun that you get Moonbeam while you're there. Although there was talk about like, well, can Moonbeam screw you up? You know, that was, that was a question that comes up and that eventually your, your attack bonuses, I think, I think that's in here, right? Doesn't your attack eventually becomes radiant. And I thought that was kind of cool. That idea that you are not just a creature, you are a, a lunar creature. You're a creature of an energy type, I thought was really kind of fun. Monks got a big bump to their martial arts die, which I think is great. They're going to be able to do more damage. They always did very light on damage, but then had all these other things that they could that they could do with them. But then the big one that people loved, you know, was Stunning Strike. And they talked about that, you know, a Stunning Strike people are like oh the stunning strike was the one thing that was really good well, was you know my thing is like when you change something and like everybody complains about it it kind of tells you it was a little bit overpowered and they actually nerfed it in two different ways one you can only use it once per turn and the stun only lasts until the start of your next turn so you can't you can't basically get the benefits benefits of the stunning strike twice i don't know that they needed that exactly like uh, you know that that's actually a nerf too far i don't know if it's too far it doesn't really matter to me the thing about stunning strike that made it overpowered in particular was being able to go up and burn the legendary resistances down of a legendary monster because they might have to make multiple legendary resistance uses to not be stunned because a stunned legendary monster is is a dead legendary monster it's really going to suck so you know the way like in my game we just i just like don't stun don't you you a stunning strike is only going to work once on a legendary monster or at the end of the volley they'll be able to use one legendary resistance to get rid of any variant of stun so you probably don't want to do it but i've also had monks that were running around stunning multiple monsters and you're like that's not so bad like it's pretty high level and is it really that much worse than hypnotic pattern hypnotic pattern could hit a bunch of guys too and knock them out of commission so i don't think it was that bad to me the, the real thing about stunning strike in particular was how it affected legendary resistance that was the weird the weird take and for my own house rules it was like i just say like please don't do that please don't stun legendary monsters or i'm, I'm kind of doing this new thing that like i can use legendary resistance to break out of debilitating things period if you force cage my legendary monster they can use a legendary resistance to rip open the force cage things like that you know i want to get away from the gamification of legendary resistance and recognizing that in the story boss monsters are just really tough but that was there as well let's take a quick look at monks again i'm not going to do a bunch of or, i'm sorry paladins we're going to look at paladins i'm not going to do a big deep dive on all this stuff because there's so much stuff 70 some pages of, of material but just a few things that really caught my eye one of the things that i that i one of the things that i always felt with paladins is like i think of all of the classes they were the class that could dump the most damage in a single round that i know of like and I, i've seen this a lot like there's probably other really tricky ways if you do crazy multi-classing kind of things but paladins with smites and being able to do stacking smites and critical hits on smites and you know mixing two different smites together and doing multiple smites per turn and then having the extra bonus of like hitting undead I've seen like 90, 100, 120, 130 point turns because of smiting in particular. Really, really, you know, big stuff. And to me, that was another one like Stunning Strike where like, I don't think it was really intended that you can smite multiple times a turn. You know, I don't, if they, I don't, I, I expect they're like, oh, we forgot to say once per turn, right? Because as soon as you say once per turn. So Paladin Smite, formerly called Divine Smite, now gives you a list of Paladin exclusive smite spells that you can always, that you ha always have prepared. So there is no Divine Smite feature. Now instead, you have a bunch of smite spells ready to go, I think. 
Yeah, Paladin Smite. You have Master Smiting your targets with Divine Energy. You always have certain spells ready. When you reach a Paladin level specified in the Smite spell table, you thereafter always have the listed spell prepared. In addition, you can cast one of your prepared spells from this feature without expending a spell slot. And you must finish a, a, a long rest before you use this benefit again. So you get a free Smite that you can do. And there is a Divine Smite Thunder, so they added Divine Smite as a spell. And then Thunder Smite, Shining Smite, Blinding Smite, Staggering Smite, Banishing Smite. So an example of the Divine Smite as a spell, it's a first level spell, it's a bonus action to use it, which you take immediately after hitting the target with a melee weapon. That's interesting. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's like a bonus reaction action, right? That bonus action, which you take immediately after hitting a target with a melee. So you burn your bonus action. That's a really strange interaction, right? That like, it's, it's, it's treated like a reaction, kind of, because it's happening in the middle of another action. But it's a bonus action, so that's that's bizarre. But it does basically what a radiant, what a divine smite used to do, which is two d eight radiant damage. Damage increases by one d eight if the target is a fiend or undead, and you can use a higher level spell slot to add an extra d eight. Really cool. So that's fine. And they're all part of a spell, so that all that all works out. That idea of using your you, you basically burn your bonus action to do a reaction, which but you're not burning your reaction in order to cast divine smite. It's a weird interaction of the actions, I think, but it's it it, it works well. There's so much stuff here. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get through all of it. If there are parts of it that you found particularly interesting that you want to hear more about, please leave a comment. You can email me, hit me on Discord, whatever you want to do to talk about specific things that you were like, oh, what about, what about X? So again, just a quick look at it. Really, we're just saying, hey, it's out there. Take a look at it. Tell me what you think. I'm really curious to, to hear what you think about the playtest. Now, along with the D&D the D &D 2024 playtest, Cobalt Press put out two playtests for Tales of the Valiant. They put out one general public playtest, which was about small folk. And I think the most interesting thing from this particular playtest is they sort of take gnomes and halflings and smallish people and put them together into one group for the the general lineage and the idea is that your heritage is really what's going to define more about who you are pretty interesting given the kind of separation of lineage and heritage i guess it sort of makes sense that we're paying less attention to like oh gnomes are a little shorter and a little wider and halflings are a little taller and a little thinner but it's like well where are they from I mean, what do they do there so that's that's really where they get into these changes curious about the feedback but it's a short play test it's a four page unlike the 70 whatever page play test that they had for the 2024 D&D one this is a pretty small one it'll be interesting to see if anybody takes a look at this and has any real kind of deep thoughts but nothing really nothing really leapt out at me you know these days we have so many different sort of species and heritage options available that the idea of like oh we're going to group your gnomes and halflings together i guess i don't know there is a little bit of like a compatibility thing on like you know i guess you there's still gnomes and halflings you could just call them small folk and that way the specific things about about these are are you know there are they really different enough that they need to have mechanical separation or can you just say oh we have halflings and we have gnomes i don't really know it's interesting though that they kobold is separate because like hey kobold we're kobolds right the kobold's making the thing so we're gonna have kobold as a separate one so that that's you know that's small but fierce right dragonkin sort of stuff so so pretty interesting and then i like that they have like a little behind the curtain to explain what's going on so you can take a look everybody gets access to that then there is also a backer playtest packet which is definitely meteor 31 pages for this one 
And this one they are covering Druid, Ranger, and Primordial Spells. What I thought was particularly interesting about this one is they also talk about Moon Druids in here. So or, or they're variant, which they call Shifter Druids, are their equivalent of Moon Druids. And they really didn't change very much from the way that Moon Druids normally work, that you still get the hit points of whatever the monster is. You still drop down to your normal Druid level after you get those hit points. So I didn't really see anything in how the Circle of the Shifter, which is kind of their version of Circle of the Moon, I didn't really see anything that's different from this from the way the 2020 2014 version of the circle of the moon druid works but we just heard me say that you know i've come to accept moon druids into my life and i, I really wasn't that bothered by them it took me a little while because i did feel like there was this big spike in power that only they got i started to just you know so what like there's there's spikes in power all over the place it wasn't a big deal and it wasn't disruptive to the game big question for me is is it disruptive to the game however there are certain spells that they are describing in this playtest packet where I say those are disruptive to the game. We know they're disruptive to the game. I do wonder if they put these spells in this playtest packet in order to gauge people to be like, are people really upset about these spells or not? And I looked and I'm like, oh, please. Like as soon as I opened it up, I was like, oh, you got to be kidding. Right? Really? And those are the summon, the summon spells or the conjure spells. I always get conjure spells and, and summon spells mixed up. I didn't really take a look at ra the ranger stuff. So again, if you've taken a look at it and you're like, oh, I want to talk about how Tales of the Valiant is handling ranger stuff, please let me know. I haven't taken that deeper look. Again, I'm a DM. I focus on DM stuff. My biggest questions are, are you going to make my life harder? Don't, don't make my life harder. And if you could make my life easier, I really love it if you can make my life easier, but don't make my life harder. But a couple of the spells that are listed in here where I'm like, oh, please don't do that. Please, please, please don't do that. Were Conjure Animals, right? So Conjure Animals is a third ring primordial. So a third ring is their version of third level. And you can summon eight beasts of challenge rating one quarter or lower. Don't let me summon eight wolves, man. Talk about disruptive to the game. When one player is able to take nine turns on their game, I have a friend of mine who has banned the son of another friend of ours from playing druids because of this spell. Cause he's like, you're not getting conjured animals anymore. Right. You, you, it's, you're just, you know, there are certain people I'm not knocking anybody. Right. But like there are certain people where they don't really get that. Sure. The, if, if the game allows you to do a thing, you should be able to do a thing. It doesn't matter if everyone hates you. It doesn't matter if everyone left to go play Diablo four while you're playing with your nine wolves or your, you and your eight wolves and your summon animal and your mount and your other, you're like, I just, the recognition of like the action economy is like a real thing and you shouldn't really be able to break the action economy. Sure. You get extra attacks. Sure. Sometimes you can summon a familiar that gives you extra stuff, but you know, like a game should be really a system should be really cognitive of the idea that the action economy needs to not be broken. This breaks the hell out of the action economy because wolves, they have an attack, their attack triggers a saving throw if they're with friends they have advantage on their attacks so it's so many d it's like 36 38 d you know 28 d 20 rolls for one turn so don't let you summon eight beasts i really like what level up advanced 5e did i really like what tasha's did where when you use these conjure animals or conjure spells in general you get a new stat block for a crazy big animal that gets to follow you around and do stuff that way you're only getting one action and make it a beefy make me make it beefy give it like a lot of cool effects or whatever but Generally speaking, in my opinion, no player should have more than like two creatures that they're controlling. And idea like some like I you know, maybe get away with three, but really if you're doing three, one of them ought to be in the back not doing anything. Right? It just takes too much time. So conjure spells. Ugh. And I do wonder if they put it in here to be like, hey, you tell us. Like we want to hear whether or not you have a problem with it. Well, I do, and I'm gonna tell them. It's up to you. I'm not telling you what to do. 
If you're like, no, I love it. When my players, if I have two, a druid and a ranger, and they both can summon conjure animals, and I now have 18, or was it 16? 16 new creatures are on the table, and they're doing, they're moving them around on the grid. That's great. I love it. Then you don't have to say anything. If you're like me, and you're like, you really feel like, hey, I want spotlight time for my players to be relatively consistent so that the player who's just a rogue who goes and stabs a guy and then does some damage shouldn't get one-fifth or one-eighth or one-ninth of the time that the druid over here who's shape-shifted and summoned animals and, and moving all their tokens around. And they're all in here. Like, all the conjures are in here. Conjure Minor Elemethals, eight one-quarter. Conjure Minor Woodland Beings, eight, you know, eight one-quarter. You know, that, like, no, stat block. I'm not going to tell them what to do, but I am going to say summoning eight is crazy. The way Level Up Advanced 5e does is you can always summon three. That's still pretty high, like four creatures, but it's way better than eight. So I would definitely lean towards a stat block, lean towards another thing. That was something that really, you know, that got my goat. And it's all, one thing is like, it's in here a lot for a lot of different things. I'm trying to remember if there are any other spells or anything else that I saw. There's a whole bunch of spells where I'm like, hey, eventually I want to tell you about this. Goodberry, let's take a look at Goodberry because I had my little Goodberry thing. Up to 10 berries appear in your hand infused with magic for duration. Creature can use this action to eat one. Eating a berry restores one hit point finds enough nourishment to sustain a creature. So that was basically the same, right? They put the same one in. Berries lose their potency if, they've been con- if they have not been consumed within 24 hours of casting a spell. I would get rid of the sustainment for a day or I would put something in here that like they don't taste good or you're going to get diarrhea. Like there should be some reason in here that you don't want to just live on Goodberries the whole time. Heat metal is another one where it's overly, if a creature holding it takes damage from that, the creature must succeed in a con save or drop the object. If it doesn't drop the object, it is disadvantaged on attack rolls and ability checks till the start of your next turn. So this is interesting. It is just an, oh no, it's concentration. Any creature, let's, let's, let's take a look at this. Make sure I got this right. Manufactured metal object, metal weapon, or a suit of heavy or medium metal armor that you can see within you. You cause the object to glow red hot. Any creature in physical contact with the object takes 2d8 fire damage when you cast the spell. Until the spell ends, you can use your bonus action on each of your subsequent turns to cause the damage again. Okay, so this is pretty much exactly the same as the other heat metal. And the issue is, it again, if you have an armored legendary creature, it completely screws them. If you have a, an armored boss... There, it, it makes them disadvantage for the whole battle and that's a problem so i'm going to mention that in my thing I, I i feel like heat metal is overly again you know it's a spell that is is multiplied by how powerful the monster is that you put it on because of the disadvantage which i don't dig most of the spells as far as i could tell were pretty much the same polymorph eh. polymorph is another one that can take a creature out of commission in like one one go but that's what legendary resistance is for basically by the time the characters get to seventh level you your bosses need to have legendary resistance so those are the things i noticed and again i do wonder if like the way that cobalt press is treating this is like they're putting out the basic one to get feedback on the basic version so they know how they can change it from actual feedback that we're receiving rather than just designers saying we know that this is the case but i would really like to see the, the conjure animals the conjure animals change let's cover our last four questions from the june 2023 patreon q a every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon site, I put up a post saying, hey, here's our Patreon Q&A. Any patron can ask a question there related to tabletop role-playing games. I answer every question Friday morning, and then some of those questions I bring here to the show. Two of the questions are actually related to a very similar topic, though, so I'm excited to talk about both of these. Andrew says, what are your feelings about using TTRPG, other TTRPG systems for games within a 5e session? An offhand comment has led 
uh, to my players wanting to create a sports game within our 5e campaign. To make it more narrative-driven, I was going to use a Powered by the Apocalypse-style 2d6 system for the sports game instead of a d20. Can this work, or is it too confusing and gets tricky due to character, ability, scores, and feats? So there's a there's two points I want to make for this. That are, that you've, If you've heard me talk about subsystems, I'm generally down on subsystems. But one of the reasons I'm generally down on them is that players are generally down on them. That play, you, you basically chose a system to play your game in. The, char- the players know how to use that system. They learn their system mastery going on. They're learning how to play it. They understand their ability scores. They understand their characters' options. They know their spells. They know their feats. They know their other abilities. And then you say, well, we're setting all that aside because you're riding on a chariot. And since you're on a chariot, we're going to have a whole new set of chariot rules that you need to learn. And they really don't work with your character. The example is like chase scenes, that there was an adventure. My wife actually played in this adventure there was an adventure that had a chase scene in it and the chase scene had a whole separate set of rules that were different from every other scenes that you would have inside D. you couldn't use spells you like got exhausted if you double moved there was all kinds of like weird stuff and i know i think the exhaustion from double move is actually in the dmg for the chase rules why i can double move all day long in combat and not take exhaustion i can double move anywhere else in the game and not take exhaustion but if i'm in a chase i get exhausted why? So sub subsystems like that are lame. However, you brought up that your players wanted you to create it. That's a different circumstance. If your players are on board and you're on board, then go with the gods, right? You can do whatever you want. And so if they're excited to do a system like that, that's different. I'm mostly worried that when you go to a player and say, hey, we have a whole new set of systems for driving around in cars in hell that's different from all the other systems. And like, oh God, I got to learn a new thing and we're only ever going to use it here. It's like driving the Mako in Mass Effect, right? Nobody, oh God, I get to ride around that lunar vehicle again. So lame. But in this case, it's different. Now, the, the system you bring up, though, is the idea of using like a Powered by the Apocalypse 2D6 system, which generally means that you have failure, success, and then success at a cost in the middle. You actually don't need a D- 2D6 for that. You could use a 2D6 for that, but you can also use the D20. Uh, I actually wrote an article about this. I wrote an article about this, cheekily called, this is back in 2016, called 1D20 Shades of Grey. You could tell what was popular back when I wrote this article. But the idea was that, like, you can actually use a D20 roll, and instead of, and it talks specifically about using, like, the Dungeon World idea, that you can grade on a curve, that instead of saying there is a flat DC, that DC 16 is what you need to hit, you could say a DC 12 will succeed, but at a cost. A DC 18 will succeed with with flying colors you can set that range you can also just have them roll the d20 and narrate based on how high or low they rolled you know you could treat it like an analog system instead of saying that you have only these either binary states of success or failure or three states of success failure and success at a cost that instead you could have a whole radiant right and the 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 example that i love to bring up is the scene from romancing the stone where you want to see like somebody who makes like a, a dc 27 charisma persuasion check is when they go to this town full of drug dealers in the middle of like you know i forget where they are columbia or something like that and they go to this like town where everybody's like armed and you know he goes up and he's trying to persuade and the guy pulls the big gun through the door and aims at his head he's like whoa and then he's like okay joan wilder write about this in your book and he's like joan wilder the the author oh my god we read your books right and it was like this awesome moment where they all fall in love with her because they know her because of her books and they're, they, you know so that's an example of like what is what is a critical success look like on an ability check or something like that and so i wrote about that in this in this article but the idea is that you can have gradients on your d20 rolls that it doesn't have to be just success or failure it can be any range of successes and you can either do that like if you want to put it in front of the players you could say 
it is a DC 12 minimum to succeed at all, but it's going to be at a cost or DC 17 is success plus. And if you do like plus five increments, that usually works. Like pick the low and the high and put about a five, you know, 25% in the middle that they could hit. That's roughly equivalent to what you're going to get rolling 2d6. So that can work. But the main things are, yeah, A, you can still do it with your D20 and you let them use their feats and everything else, but you could do the success at a cost idea from Powered by the Apocalypse. You can definitely do that in your D&D game. You can improvise it. You don't even have to describe it as a subsystem. You just say, hey, here's, you know, you could succeed, but it's going to be really risky over here. You could succeed with Wild and Covers over here. Or just have them roll and choose the, you know, come up with the outcome based on the nature of the roll. If they rolled a, nine, a, a, a you know, 27, that means something totally different than if they rolled a 12 and it was a DC 12. You you just barely make it it's all in how you describe things but that really works and then but the main thing is when you talk about subsystems your players are the ones who brought the idea to you or you brought it up with them and they were on board totally fine with subsystems at that point mostly i'm against it when you're trying to bring a whole new subsystem to your players and they don't really they're not really that interested so madman quail actually kind of builds on this he says when revealing secrets and clues how might you reward a higher investigation role are there good ways to make players feel like they hit on an extra nugget of information beyond the baseline yes so we're just talking about this gradient idea that if they're rolling an investigation check and you've decided that it's like a DC 13 for them to be able to find the secret note in the guy's office that has the information they need and they roll and they roll a 13 on the nose you're like you you know you're scrambling around you you hear guards walking around the hall and you look and you're like I think that's it and you grab it and it, sure enough you got the piece of information but then they roll like a 26 and you're like wow you doubled what you needed and you're like not only do you find that note you also find a bunch of blackmail material you also find you learn something more now you're going to have to learn how to improvise some of these things that they know but i've definitely had secrets and clues where there's gradients to the amount of information from a secret that they might be able to pick up you might have multiple secrets for the other the, the, the an event and the higher their role is the better the secret they get so you can kind of do that during your prep a little bit if you want you can also just sort of improvise it unlike they learn a little bit more than you expected to tell them based on whatever kind of investigation check they did another trick that i do is sort of the roll it forward which is if they roll so well on a check but they're really not learning any new information that they might not get if they either they, they rolled low or if they had already they would have gotten it or already had some of the information you can move it forward pay it forward and they said like you rolled so well on that check you get the next one for free that essentially like you learn this other you're still so in the zone that you learn this other piece of information for free so you can take it of like they roll really well take that roll forward, give them more information later. Hey, because you rolled a 20 on that history check a little while ago, you actually also know about this thing, right? And that way you can, you can sort of move that bonus forward. They rolled really well because I have had it happen where a player rolls like a tremendous religion check, an intelligence religion check, and they roll like a 22 and you're telling them the same thing that they really already knew from somebody else's roll because there really isn't more to know. But you like you don't want to waste the roll. So instead, you could say something like you learn, you know, you learn more than you, you know. We're gonna roll that forward. You did really well. Remind me of that. And next time you're doing a check, remind me that you rolled on this. And then if there is a new thing, you can have them sort of bring it forward. But again, that idea of sort of the d20 roll as a gradient rather than a success or a failure. You can have them roll however high they roll is how you describe it. There's also a lot about just empowering the character, right? Talking about how they discovered it and talking about their 
the vast knowledge that they have and the, like the Sherlock Holmes style maps that they're building in their heads while they're going about that even if they're still learning the same thing the way they learn it might really empower the character based on the fact that they rolled like a 22 instead of like a 12 where they're kind of scrambling around just barely figuring it out narration matters a lot flavor matters a lot how you describe things matter a lot and it's in that flavor and narration and descriptions that's where you can show the difference between like a 12 and a 22 on a check without having to come up with whole new pieces of information for them to learn so Matt Manquail, I hope, and, and Andrew, those are fantastic questions. I hope, I hope that helped. Rango, who is, I think, here in chat. There he is. See, there he is in chat. Says, I am not great at improvising evocative descriptions, although I'm better at coming up with descriptions of people than places and landscapes. I have a very wide passive vocabulary, but accessing it actively in the moment is difficult. I try to expand on a brief intro, intro description and end up repeating myself. You see an, a tall old tower covered in ivy. It's ancient and high and overgrown with vines short of writing read aloud text for every potential scene in a session how can i get better at descriptions fantastic question i have i have three possible answers to this of course your mileage may vary on all of them but i have three possible things that can do one is be 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 a friend to yourself you don't have to be perfect in all of this stuff. We are just sitting at a table, enjoying times with our friends. A lot of times we misspeak and say stuff and our players laugh and we laugh with it and we just go with it. We're not Patrick Stewart doing a one-man show of King Lear, right? We're just sitting with our friends having a good time. So don't worry too much about trying to find the exact right descriptions for things. I, a lot of times we're watching like streaming shows and we see people are professionals and they're doing a really good job at it. And we're like, I wish you could be like them. It's okay. It's okay to not be perfect on that. So one, first, be nice to yourself. Two, two, two. Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, this is an area where it actually has something in there that, that, that helps. Something I haven't done as much of recently, but fits this perfectly, which is there is... There's, there's, there's something in the middle between writing your own flavor text and improving an entire description of a location. And that's jotting down one or two word descriptions of the location when you're doing your prep. So generally speaking, when you're using, when you, when you're prepping a game, a typical kind of fifth edition game, you're probably going to get through one major location every 45 minutes of gameplay. So if you're picking out those general locations, you're listing those locations and you have some of these ideas about these good descriptive terms, just drop those good description, good descriptive terms in the location notes, not full sentences not read aloud text just things to, to 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 hit your mind and if you've got those really fun words cyclopean and you know whatever really good really good words for things you know antediluvian right you want to throw the word antediluvian in there which doesn't make any sense because it's before the flood you know fantasy worlds probably didn't have a flood maybe they had a flood i don't know but you know you can drop those words in just one or two words for the description i call these aspects in return of the lazy dungeon master that that idea of like dropping in these three aspects the key to those aspects are there's something that the characters definitely notice and something maybe that the characters can do something with those are really kind of keys and keys that really make it evocative that kind of prep should be pretty low prep. It should be pretty quick to whip up a location that way. The name of the location, which also can be pretty evocative. That's something. Come up with an evocative name for the location, not just tower, but like the you know crumbling tower of Set or crumbling tower of the Storm Giant Lord, and then drop in just a couple of key terms from this language that you want to that you want to tap into, so that during the game you can look at it and you know I'm I'm hitting these three things. These are the three important things about this tower that I want to drop in. That's another one. And then the third is kind of like the first one about being easy on yourself, which is take a quick break. That you know, and even if it's just 
just a few seconds. You can stop for a second, say, hey, like, give, me, give me just a couple of seconds. So when they go to a location, if you're not ready, if you don't have that stuff and you want to think about it, take a few seconds and jot down your own little notes. Again, one or two words that helps you kind of remember that location. And then you can speak to it. You don't have to write all your flavor text, but whatever those key indicators are of, of the things about this location that you really want people's attention to be on, take that a little bit of extra time and write it down if you're, if you're not ready. You can also do it during a break. If you know like, oh, well, they're headed towards a crumbling tower and I don't really have anything, then you can just whip out one of your three by five cards. Again, we always have three by five cards on our hand and write down some quick notes about that. Rangdo, I hope that helps. Danito says, as a GM, do you tell your players about changes you made to an existing adventure you played or are currently playing? I try not to. Sometimes I will. Sometimes I will. And sometimes I'll have players who ask me about it. I have a couple of players who are always like, is that what's in the book or did you make that up? They want to know. And one of the things that I try not to do is I, I, I say, like, look, it, it, the world is the way the world is. We, we experience that. It doesn't matter if it came from a book. It doesn't matter if it came from something I came up with. That is irrelevant. What happened at the table with us all involved is the reality of what actually occurred. The problem when you talk to your players about stuff is it can make the game feel ethereal. It makes the game not feel real. It makes it feel kind of fuzzy and like anything could have happened, and you know, which is true in life too, right? Like our world, lots of different things could have happened based on various weird circumstances. So I try not to. I try. Now it's it's definitely fun to talk to other GMs about what happened, and you certainly have players who are like, oh, I played the same adventure in two different places and here's stuff that happened and you could talk about it but generally i know you want to talk about it and definitely we want to say oh man it would have been so different if you guys went to the black tower of you know the the black tower of the the antediluvian black tower of vines and you went and got that sword you'd have a totally different experience with this than you did but it also kind of gives like oh right like oh i wish we had done that right so particularly if you're like oh the other path would have been cooler don't tell them right? Like, don't let them enjoy the one that they took. So generally I would, I would say no. Generally I would say, do not, do not talk to them about the things that you made to an adventure. If they really ask and you want to have a discussion, you can do that. But just keep in mind that, you know, keep, man, did I never change this whole, this whole show? I never changed my bottom window to the talk show image. Oh, well, keep in mind, that's going to be weird that I changed it. I'll change it back because some people are like, why did that change? So generally speaking, I would, I would try not to, if you really want to talk to people, try to find some other GM channels. There's lots of discord channels that talk about different adventures and you can talk to people there about like how things changed and other people's experiences and that, but you want to make sure it's clear to the players that played your game, that what happened at the game, that's the real one. The one that happened at the table is the real one because it was written in a book one way and it changed in a different way. doesn't matter. The fact that you went a different direction than what the book said doesn't matter. What matters is that fun story that you shared with your players. That is the real game that occurred. That is, that's the real stuff. So, so I, I would be very careful about talking to your players about the games, about how things have changed from the published adventure. My, my wife asks me sometimes, was that in the book? Was that not? And I'll say like, I'm not, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. That's, that's what happened. Right. Sometimes I say, no, that was, yeah, that was something I added. I thought it would be fun if we did X. And sometimes they could tell because they're like, there's no way the book talked about my uncle being in there, right? Like there's no way this character thing that we did could have gone a certain way, which is another advantage of running a homebrew game that when you run a homebrew game, they know it's all built around them. They know that it's going in that direction. So then there isn't this question of what's real and what's not because what's real is what happened at the table.
Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in role-playing games. If you enjoyed this show and you want more material like this, consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You will get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox for free, plus a free adventure generator PDF. You can also subscribe, you can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, video previews, and more. It's very low price. And you can also pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Workbook, and The Lazy DM's Companion. Links to all of those are in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play a role-playing game.